Hey folks, welcome back to the office. Barry and I are joined by a, I'm gonna file, John, I'm gonna file you under people who've reached out to me on the internet who I've become friends with, which is a small but growing list of people, if I'm being honest. I feel lucky to be among those. That, that group, I followed you, love chatting with you, and definitely do consider your friend. So I feel like that's accurate. So. A, a wonderful assortment of weirdos who I enjoy learning things from. So, uh, John, before I endanger your credibility any further, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for folks at home so they know who it is that we're talking to today. Well, as Gabriel said, my name is John Queen. My, my background is sociology through and through, bachelor's, master's, and continuing. I'm a sociologist at Arizona State University. Prior to that, the reason I fell in love with sociology, ironically, is that I spent the majority of my prior career being a market researcher, uh, working my way up to being a director of research and business development. So have a passion for all things social, networking, and just studying human beings in general, I guess, if you want to call it people watching studying. <laughs> yeah, and so actually that sort of gets into why we brought you on uh, today and you know we were you know texting about this and um, we want to get into you know, your dark and sordid past of working for the private world. Uh, as though uh, in academia we have an ethical leg to stand on. So, <laughs> now, so John, you prior to your position now as a sociologist and yeah. as a lecturer, as some places call it, like professor practice, that kind of thing. Which professor practice because is something that they use at other institutions I've worked at, which is always to me just a funny way of saying like, yeah, no, we'll we're not going to give you any of the benefits, but we'll recognize that you do more work than everyone else. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So as a, you know, prior to your life now as a lecturer, you, like you said, you're working in, in the private world and marketing and that kind of thing. So just, we'll start with broad strokes and then we'll get into sort of the, the, uh, the nuts and bolts of it. What was your, you know, what was your primary area of work? Understanding that you probably had a career that spanned a few different things. Yeah. Uh, my day to day changed all the time, right? Uh, I started on the bottom end seeing what I eventually started marketing. So I did everything and I sold everything from furniture all the way up to SaaS space technologies. But uh, when I got into the market research world, my day-to-day -day really involved kind of looking into passion point studies, analyzing patterns and trends, combing quantitative and qualitative right numbers or people, and then just kind of figuring out what does the zeitgeist that gets people to want to buy, right? And then one of the biggest things that we started looking into, utilizing different methods was, well, why would Dave, who works as a CMO, come home and let's say he's religious and goes to church and then he doesn't want to do the CMO work at church? What's the misconnection here? We started kind of looking at persona tests, right? And one of my biggest jobs that I did was reverse engineer every single personality test. Myers-Briggs, PEI, DISC, figured out, their, figured out their algorithms and created what was called Motives Met. Basically trying to find, can we match someone's cultural identity, social identity, work ethic to a job that may be seen by others as beneath them, but was what they wanted to do when you know they got off their whole ass job. So it ended up being kind of really cool research. So I was analyzing patterns of behavior, looking at what are the trends in marketing? How do we help a company go from po positive Likert scores, but like no donation increases in the non-for-profit world or no new clientele brought in the profit world. And that was that disconnection of me taking my sociological background and being like, let's look at the qualitative. Let's see what the people are really saying. Like maybe you should mm -hmm. listen to your clients, right? And yeah. uh, I, I ended up doing, um, three-year deep dive of over 20 years of data because no one wanted to come to the wall. And then I started <laughs> noticing, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was just like, y'all haven't looked at this. You ask this in open ends every single day. They're like, yeah, you know, to be nice. I'm like, okay. And then I looked through it <laughs> yeah. and I saw that there were things like, I'm not even kidding with you, there were things like, would love for the company to throw a beer party where I could meet other people 
like myself and share ideologies. And they're like, oh, that wouldn't be that bad, would it? So then I got them to throw this huge festival in, it was for a think tank in DC and everyone came. Donations skyrocketed, their total profits went up by almost hundred percent in that quarter because suddenly they had loved the idea in the Likert scales, but they had felt like no one cared about them. And that's kind sure. of the interesting element that I found in marketing is that the fragmentation of society that we're seeing with the modernity of technology has made things like sociology, comm studies more and more prevalent because we no longer have that, like everyone watches the news, everyone holds that idea. We have to be able to learn how to like differentiate our approaches. And that's kind of what my job was, was look at the research. And then I was also the director of business development, figure out how do we take X and turn it into a profit or how do we take this message and turn it into something that connects to people's spirits, feelings, and donations. Yeah. Okay. So you were cracking human puzzles as yes. it were. Yes. Yeah. So I had, I had a colleague some years ago when I was an adjunct who was a history professor who had a sister who taught who taught sociology, and he always referred to it as the study of the fucking obvious. And there's a little bit of j joke to that, but the underlying truth is that we when you take a sociology class and i'm talking like introductory level kind of stuff right yeah. same thing and i would apply this to communication studies as well that you're often looking at things that seem intuitive right these mm -hmm. should be things that we already kind of know as i tell my students when i taught you know undergraduate intro to comm classes and interpersonal communication it's like i'm going to teach you guys stuff that you already know but didn't think about right yep and so to your point about like what these companies are thinking, like they're collecting all this data, 20 years worth of data, right? And then not, they figure they know the answers already, probably on some level, because like people are people and how different and how, you know, how much information could you actually learn? And then actually it turns out that no, there is some really valuable stuff here, right? And it's funny that you mentioned the Likert scale because the Likert scale is like one of those foundational tools for, you know, qualitative social sciences and quantitative for that matter. But so for anyone who's not familiar with the Likert scale, it's basically, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm a little rusty. I haven't taught social science methodologies in a while, but it's just a scale of <laughs> one to five, right? It can, it can be one to seven, but yeah, it's a scale of one to whatever you're putting it. Yeah. The point being that there is a middle number that's usually like some sort of neutral point. Right. Yeah. So like one being strongly disagree and then five being strongly agree. And then yeah. the three or in the case of one to seven, the five uh, being the sort of like neither strongly agree nor disagree and that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. And you can and people are comfortable filling out Likert scales because they're not threatening, typically speaking. And also when the information is anonymized, they figure, you know, what the heck. But like it's kind of interesting then that what you were figuring out was at least in that case of like the, you know, the beer party or whatever. That's human connection that people are looking for, yep. right? Which should be intuitive, <laughs> but isn't necessarily, right? One point I want to make here that's an interesting factor. So when you get into the market research world, one in seven or one in five in your case are the only numbers that you really want to see. Because one means it's so effed up that you can fix it, right? Like maybe there's mm -hmm. something you can do, brand rehaul. Seven is, or five is great, you're doing awesome. Four, three, and two, you're done as a company because think about this like take it into like a this is why i do in a social classes like you're saying you're talking about the obvious but you explain it with better analysis towards like their real life experience and you can latch on to people do you give a one or a five to a zoo uh, uber driver how often do you give a three or four right because you have to be really pissed to want to give a three or four because it wasn't mm -hmm. quite so that idea of like if you see companies getting fours and fives out of a set sorry fours or threes out of a five scale like you're that means they're so mad, but they're not horribly disappointed. And you may be too far gone to fix that problem. But like when someone right. makes a one or a five, you're like, oh, we're doing great. 
oh, we have a lot to change. So it's interesting because that is exactly human connection because we feel pressured. And people are so comfortable with bikers, like you mentioned, because that's exactly how Uber made their money. Get out of the car, have someone looking at you, five star, mm -hmm. one star. Not even the media. You hear someone say, I'm giving with three. Yeah. <laughs> no one does that. Right, right. It's it also kind of gets to the point that like the spaces between the numbers, and this is going to sound kind of silly to anyone who who hears this initially, but I promise this is worth considering. The spaces in between those numbers is not equidistant, right? Yeah. Like a, a five to a four is not the same thing as like a three to a two. Exactly. Right. And so part of being able to interpret that accurately is like a part of the skill set. Yeah. Yep. And then you run into the problem, which we all run into in this world of the unnecessary uh, bourgeoisie, if I may, or the haves and the have-nots. When you get them and they get a five-point Likert scale result coming in at a three-and-a-half to a four-and-a-half, they're like, can we just change this to a seven? And that's the mm -hmm. old marketing world of the pollsters versus the marketers, right? I've worked for yeah. some big companies that I have quite a few NDAs, so I can't do more than that. I've been like, well, the, the results came back like into a four. Can we just make it a four-point scale? And I'm like, no, we can't change the data. <laughs> <laughs> what if we just cook the books real quick? Is that just real quick, just for a second? Uh, no one's gonna yeah. know. I'm like, I'll know. I'll know. <laughs> yeah, and your audience will know when you adapt to their uh, requests based on this information, and it's totally frigging wrong, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just it. Like, if you're adjusting the metric with which you are uh, using to assess your audience or your clientele or whoever it happens to be, then. Yeah, they're going to tell when you react based on that skewed data now, right? So when we when you think about like identifying trends and things like that, one of the things that sort of the, that you brought up that came to mind was this idea of uh, like the, the Myers-Briggs tests and, and mm -hmm. what have you. And tests like that are somewhat, at least in my experience, and I might be misspoken here, but correct me if I'm wrong, but they are, there's a funny relationship that researchers have with those kinds of tests because... Yeah. Like a Myers-Briggs test isn't going to tell you, for example, that like you're a broken person, right? The no. results are almost always some variation of positive or can be spun in a positive way. And also the very premise of collapsing down someone's personality into, you know, I think the Myers-Briggs uses what, like four different categories, something along those lines? ENTJ, INTJ, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. All those sort of different things, right? So then what is the utility of a tool like that? A lot of ways for me, I think it has to do with labeling theory, right? Giving someone this label, if they get like, let's say an ENTJ, you get these beautiful buzzwords, right? Like leader, starter, self-governed person. And you can go into the idea of Merton's self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like, oh, uh, I never thought I was an extrovert, but the Myers-Briggs told me that I'm an extrovert and a leader and a, and a, and a commander of people. I'm going to change who I am because... A lot of times we become, if you want, depending on which theorist, you want to go down a path where right? we're socially constructed. So if you go down this path of like, oh, well, if this test is telling me that I'm awesome, then I guess I'm awesome by proxy. But mm -hmm. when I think of the Myers-Briggs, and you bring up that one, right? Like that was founded by two pseudoscientists, people who literally were just stay-at-home wives who were fans of Carl Jung and uh, built it off of this construction, later being turned, if you watch in the documentary, they were also kind of into fascism. Uh, so not exactly a great idea. Go hold on, on. A minute, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. The the statement that a Myers-Briggs test, a personality test, was somehow connected to people who were into fascism even a little bit sounds shocking, but also makes a lot of sense. It does, doesn't it? They were in, Carl Jung was very famously kind of into eugenics. So like it makes kind of sense of uh, where you're looking at this from. He, oh, if you, yeah, kind of. He wrote he some was. early. 
he wrote some early things, right? Like, uh, was it like the, the Jewish spirit and like the Aryan soul or something along those lines? Like, he, yeah. Like, there were oh statements boy. made that can't go back. But, I mean, it goes down to which ones you're going to look at. So the reason I could reverse engineer these tools towards, you know, finding out these labels that self-fulfilling prophecy these people into believing things was because I, in my... When I left undergrad, I got an internship administering Myers-Briggs. I can completely, and this shows you the validity of Myers-Briggs, rig my test because I know where the questions are layered. And there's like, mm-hmm. they used to be historically, before they did the Amphrey category, one question that was basically asking if it was going to end up if you're an I or an E. So if you're not familiar, that's an extrovert or an introvert, right? And the question legit was phrased, and I'm not correct here, so this is paraphrasing, do you go out on the weekends? That, that was their definitive construct of like finding if you're an E or an I at one point. Right. Water is wet, you know? So yeah. <laughs> the better right, ones, right, if right. you're ever interested in like actually doing these, Dave, is strength finders. They actually use more scientific background of testing people on a multitude of questions that start showing if you are a woo, or, which is winning person over, or if you're somebody who's more stagnated at staying home. And there's some that have validity. But that's what we were looking for. That's why I spent two years reverse engineering the code, figuring out an algorithm that had a one and I think 1.6 million possible responses that I built because I figured out like these personality tests could be useful, but what mm-hmm. are we using them for? Like what's an Enneagram and going to do? Tell me a number so I can go on a date and someone thinks that might be nice. <laughs> so. Is there a dating uh, a website that uses Enneagrams yet? Because if it's not, I feel like we're not far behind from it. We're not far behind from it, but people definitely like, so in my class, I teach Social 315, which is love, dating, and relationships, which is basically me telling kids, I hope you love love because marriage is founded for two reasons, economic growth and the raising of children. And then they all mm-hmm. look sad. I feel of this. I ask the first day of class, I say, who wants to get married? Every single hand goes up, right? And then I wait, pause like three seconds, put a nefarious look on my face, and I go, why? Every hand goes down. And then I'm like, oh, oh yeah. so are you following a social checklist or do you actually know why you want to entangle yourself legally, fiscally to someone the rest of your life? Mm-hmm. And then they spend the next three and a half weeks on Yellow Dig, which is, if you don't know that tool, it's a discussion board. Yeah, it's being like, I can't believe I didn't raise my hand. <laughs> it's, yeah, I, it, it's fun. In my interpersonal uh, comm class, we have a similar conversation of like, well, okay, how many of you believe in like, you know, a one true love kind of thing, right? Yeah. And I always like to point out that like, you know, my wife does and whatnot. And I have, you know, some students raise their hands and whatnot. And I said, okay, now let's just crunch the numbers real quick. There's 8 billion people in the world. What are the odds <laughs> that your soulmate was born within about a 70 mile radius of you, right? Propinquity. Right. And by the way, and has like survived. I think that's also a component <laughs> to consider here. Listen, sometimes your soulmate dies. All right. That's all I'm saying, you know. Uh, we had one, but it's gone now. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> anyway, so, but yeah, I mean, that's just it, right? When you take these sort of, joking a little bit, but like when you take these broad mythologies, right? And then you break them down into like, well, okay, the actual mechanics, the, the chances of falling in love with somebody. And what does it look like when you build a life together? And hey, statistically, if you have kids, what's that going to do to the marriage, right? I think the data suggests that having kids is not great for marriages, by the way, right? Or something along those lines. So, and I have um, 456,000 reasons why I don't want children. That's okay. Um, Well, look, you know, Barry's lousy with kids, like just kids everywhere, you know, just so (laughs) if you need one, he'll, you know. By the way, if you want, that's a deep cut of how much the, they depict how much you're going to spend per child, not including college and gifts. 456,000? 
it's around there. Yeah, I'd have to look up the recently inflated ratio, but the Department of uh, like I forget which one does it. I think it's the ecological points how much kids cost between the years. Obviously, the major expenditure years are baby diapers and all the things that I don't. So I always get to give that number in class and be like, I'll be in Europe while y'all are changing babies. <laughs> I love my kids. I don't know if I can quantify my love into a cool one million between the two of them. Good day. All right. That's. <laughs> <laughs> Now you know why so, people hate sociology, right? Because like, yeah. we stand up there and we say that, and then they're like, I'm quitting. And I'm like, nice to see you. No, look, I, <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. It's when, you know, when when you do like critical work, you know, no one invites you to parties because none of your fun facts are actually fun. So They're fun to me. They're fun, yeah, yeah. At this point, whenever I ask my wife, hey, I learned something new. Do you want to know what it is? Her response is no. No, I don't. Because it's never anything that improves her day, right? Anyway, so <laughs> so the Myers Briggs test, the you know reverse yeah. engineering. Honestly, what comes to mind, and this is probably a heavy-handed, like, well, hmm, I was going to say we're not doing struck work, so I can't talk about a prominent show that featured advertising agencies in a particular period in time. But this idea of selling feelings, yeah. right? Yeah, which sounds at least as I say it like a really crass way of characterizing this kind of thing. But when you talk about, like you said at the beginning, identifying like cultural interests, demographic trends, things like that, like if you were to reconcile for someone like your students or for anyone listening to this, reconcile the idea that we exist as individuals, that we have unique experiences or we have individualized experiences that lead to a complex, you know, personality and approach to life. But we also very easily fit into trends. Like, how does that, how does that make sense? Like, how do you explain that to folks? Yeah, we fall into like the trends. The easiest way that I can kind of deconstruct it, unfortunately, this is going to sound super sociological, is everyone has reference groups, right? That becomes down the idea of how, how do we represent ourselves? How do we look into who we think we are? How do we construct this sense of self? So as we're building into these personas and we fall into these personality assessments, how much do we spend time filling out these tests, trying to emulate the person that we see as the reference of who we are, right? And so we go down this path of like developing these tools, these uh, passion points or these uh, surveys, and we're asking generalized questions, right? Because you use generalizability. How can we take a small sample? How can we make it representative to a larger group and scale? Uh, historically, right, we're not that good. We tend to take a lot of white people's opinions and then say it throws them <laughs> the rest mm-hmm. of society. Uh, you know, what's it called? Uh, WEIRD is the acronym we use in statistics. Run into the issue where it's like, oh, yes, if we study men, this obviously is going to apply for women because, yeah, that logic has worked for amazing periods of time of history. And what does um, weird stand for? I, I don't have it off the top of my head. I'd have to quickly Google it if you, want, if you want that. I always forget it, but it has to do with basically the construct behind it without Googling it is the idea that we tend to use white people in our samples. But let me get the actual definition for you while I'm talking. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, so we build these buckets, we build these types of persona, personality structure assessments when I was working for them. And we, we put pretty generalized statements. I mean, think back to what I mentioned, uh, the Myers-Briggs was made by devout fans of Carl Jung, and they built these kind of self-reporting things. The origination of the Myers-Briggs was in women's magazines. That's what it was for. It was in uh, women's health magazines of ways to understand and how to cope. So there's a lot of docility that comes from, like, people feeling like they fall into these categories. I kind of see it almost as uh, the famous... Marxian quote that, you know, religion is the opiate to the masses, the cry of relief to the oppressed, right? Having a personality assessment test or having these types of tools that can ask questions, tying to passions, tying to people's groups, ideally is good, but mm-hmm. it also ties to this idea of lumping people into categories. Labeling theory by Howard Becker, right? There's the primary and there's a the secondary. 
Uh, we don't always originally take what's told to us. Like if someone said, hey, Gabe, you're a bully, you'd be like, okay. But if, some, but if you actually eventually were told that enough and you become a bully, how long does that take for someone to be able to put that label upon you? Sure, sure. So the ascribed identity and how that informs the, the inter- how that eventually becomes internalized. Oh, and that's interesting. Weird stands mm-hmm. for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and, de- and Democratic. Huh. And that's a comment on the demographics of the people that are often used for these. Yeah. Yeah. If there's a commonality that we, we take in our sample and we look for Western people who are educated, industrialized, and more commonly, you'll have the rich individuals that do the surveys. And then it's more of a de- democratic structure. And then when I was doing research for these companies, it was easier to get upper class white women to do surveys than it was even men, which is interesting. And then it was substantially harder and way more expensive if you wanted to include diversity. You wanted a sample of highly educated people of color, you're going to be paying tens of thousands of dollars. So companies would decide that, they, well, you know, maybe we don't need that much of a representation of people of color. And suddenly you start seeing that, oh, maybe we need. So you get a lot of problems of how do we get interesting, compact and diverse data money. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that also kind of gets to, you know, in higher education, there's always that question of retention, right? Of student retention. How do we get the mm-hmm. students to come back? That kind of thing. And when you think about like, if, if I'm guessing, you know, who they're interviewing and who they're getting these answers from about what is going to retain a student, that is likely going to be the kind of folks that you're talking about, right? Yeah. Because if you ask a, if a university tries to figure out what is going to retain students and that's in that university already has a problem with retaining students of color, then by sheer volume of the, by, by virtue of the number of people who respond, they're mostly going to be the kind of folks who are going to be there anyway. So how, without a critical approach to it, without a, a thoughtful, you know, approach to who it is you're recruiting, what kind of answers are you getting back that connects to another joke I know about sociologists. And that is that sociology <laughs> is a study of uh, university sophomores, which, <laughs> which I, I make jokes, but only because like they come from a place of communication studies steals shamelessly from sociology and psychology yeah. Yeah. and is really just jealous at the lack of history. Cause we don't go back that far. So <laughs> you say it great. I think I said this to you once that my, my yeah. wife has a communications degree and I fully agree with you. She calls it the perfect blend. Now she doesn't use the word steal because she's so kind to me, uh, but she calls it the perfect blend of social and psych, right? So yeah. it's this idea of taking the best of the best of the theories and having not as much hatred between the groups. And as Garrison Keeler put it, it's the major for people who don't want to stop day drinking. And that certainly spoke to me in undergrad anyway. So, <laughs> but, <Yeah>. but, <laughs> But that thing of like looking at a particular demographic and then extrapolating out from there, even with the understanding that like this is premised on categories of people and you're often dealing with a particular category of person that isn't necessarily like, yeah, some things are going to transfer over a little bit. Like the idea of wanting community is a pretty broad spectrum appeal, but the needs for what satisfy that aspect of community, right, are going to change. So. What did this mean in terms of like informing advertising approaches? Because you talked a little bit about the, you said you you were referencing a a think tank in in DC and and that kind of like you know quote unquote nonprofit endeavor. What does that mean in terms of like marketing strategies? Yeah, so that's a big thing that's kind of shifting. So it depends how you want to start the conversation on there, right? So I was. What we're seeing now is a massive fragmentation of diffusion of information, right? Mass communication mm-hmm. and. Many, many companies, news outlets in the past who had this kind of monopolization or the stronghold on the uh, ability to brand devices, tools, messages, news, were easily more accountable, especially, you know, for anyone on the older generation side. And what we're seeing is with this complete 
disruption in that idea that fields like ours, especially even mine, sociology is becoming highly prominent and prevalent inside this area because we study groups and we understand how groups work, right? So without this conglomerate of the news organization pulling massive numbers, it's estimated that mostly around, most news companies are having a hard enough time keeping 600,000 concurrent users that are mm. looking into it. I mean, think about how small that is, like population of Chicago. You, you don't even have a majority of Chicago watching the news, and that's where I'm from. And so if they're not watching the news, they're still learning from somewhere. But where is the question? And then you right. start looking at, you know, most Gen Z report getting their news from TikTok, right? I met you on this platform, same idea. So mm -hmm. with this idea of the fusion of information for marketing strategies, it's requiring this kind of thinking outside the box. And that's where you kind of have this Venn diagram that sociology brings into the equation and marketing needs to start learning from this that we can no longer hope to just put on channel six all of the ads for Stouffer's new idea or on any of these programs that have been historically connected to stereotypical categories of okay more women watch this channel more men watch this channel we're having to diversify our approaches i mean think to some of the artists who've come forward saying that they can't even release their album unless they have a song go viral so suddenly mm -hmm. we're being able to get it's a marketer's wet dream, for lack of better terminology, to be able to have a tool like TikTok, but it's also terrifying to them because it's changed this ability of how do we reach the masses? How do we how do we do this? I mean, think of all of the cringe videos you've likely seen of these very famous celebrities taking part in the TikTok dances because they know this will rise their capital. So we're now right. seeing a new modern corporation, right? We're seeing this ability for how do we market? How do we diffuse our information? How do we get brand awareness out there? Well, you either die with the times or you adapt to the times. And a lot of the marketing strategies have come into realizing that we have to use a fragmented style of multimedia advertising. Because if we don't, and we rely on the archaic marketing shows that anyone could be thinking of, right? And those don't work anymore. Because the idea of, my father was a madman. My father worked for Leo Burnett right after the Mad Men era just had ended. So he was still there with the tycoons before they left. And all of the things you've seen in the TV shows as such, ends up being true of that time. They would take people out for drinks and for, they would be able to go to strip clubs, all of these like risque things. And now these agencies, mm -hmm. they have a hard time keeping their door open because what's stopping you from being the new marketing executive who opens up Dr. C's marketing company and decides to use your virality on the internet. You're just as powerful right. as these companies. Yeah, that idea of, and this also kind of gets to something we talk about in class of gatekeepers, you know, from an institutional perspective and the problem that they have posed historically as people who regulate, right, the dissemination of, of information. You think about like just advertisers as gatekeepers of the kind of messaging that reaches audiences and they're going after as broad a market as they can choose as they would like to because, you know, they want everyone to buy their product, but also they're using a very small sample size, which means that they're not effectively marketing to, you know, more niche demographics that, you know, have, you know, established communities and things like that. But at the same time, with the advent of, you know, individuals and the fragmentation and, you know, individual influencers and things like that, like we've seen with social media develop over the last 15 years, and in particular now with things like TikTok and also Instagram and what have you, it, we also don't get like quality control. Right. We don't get I'm loath to hold up any corporation as like a standard and ethical approaches to advertising. But at the very least, they're accountable to somebody. Right. A company is accountable to perhaps the shareholders or a CEO. If, if they're in charge, if they're a private organization, they're, you know, held accountable to whoever is running it or 
the, I don't know, the SEC or the FCC or any of those other sort of regulating bodies, yeah. right? But with individual influencers, man, it's the Wild West, so to speak, right? Which means that you can have people who, on the one hand, can do more targeted demographic uh, appeals. On the other hand, can be pushing snake oil, right? Exactly. By yeah. the way, I just wanted to, well, it's just completely off topic, but I don't like to put numbers that are incorrect. I was always, I always use it as a double kid example, but the actual predicted for 2022, at least by the, what was it? The Department of Agriculture, who does the projection, it's just under 300,000. It's 292,017, right? So That's just still big, nuts. <laughs> it's still nuts, but I just wanted it to be accurate for your podcast. It's almost 300,000 per child, not including college or gifts. I read a Calvin and Hobbes comic years ago yes. where the dad talks to Calvin and says, or Calvin was asking for some money or something like for, I don't know, a comic book or something like that. And his dad says, you know, and mind you, this was written in like 1987. He goes, you know, the, <laughs> he says, you know, the average amount of money spent on raising a child until they're 18 is $80,000. Now, is that Ooh. a gift or a loan? And that's the end panel. And then I now think like eighty thousand dollars, man, that'd be nice. Like <laughs> that'd be nice. That'd be that'd be so nice. <laughs> that would be cool. There's a really fun since you said uh, make some jokes on social. I turn to return it on the side of my own field. There, mm -hmm. You know the old joke when people would say uh, they would say to the kids, "Do you have McDonald's money?" Right? Yeah. Like one two dollars. Yeah. yeah. Well, in our new inflated, amazing economy, the real question is, do parents even have McDonald's money? There you go. There you go. look. We Someone's got out of the sad house. Now. <laughs> we got it at the house look we got a bag of you know three-year-old crinkle cut fries that got mostly freezer burn but we'll throw them in the oven that's the kind of that's what we can they're afford good. Yeah. they're a little more crispy and you know yeah. what don't complain go get a job we're not they're not hiring not my problem <laughs> I, I, I told my mom one time i said you know the two most common phrases i heard growing up were i love you and i we don't got money for that that's yeah so so yeah, yeah when it comes no, 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 that's fine. That's most of our shows to some extent is getting <laughs> off topic. We bring on people to talk about a specific subject matter and then immediately get in the weeds of something else entirely. So the entire premise of the show actually was we kept getting off topic in, in other aspects of our lives. We, we need an outlet for this. <laughs> that's, that's largely. Yeah, we do the Barry and I do this because our real life tangents will stretch for hours and it's just not an effective way of spending time. Uh, so, so obviously you need to record your tangents. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rather than learn appropriate social behavior behaviors and respect mm -hmm. the fact that we have children yeah. and spouses who, you know, require things of us in order to live fulfilling lives. We just take it on the road, so to speak. So, yeah. <laughs> Hence the age of podcasting. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, that's most of what podcasting is. It's, it's, you know, dudes on the internet avoiding whatever responsibilities they have. Before including you finish, I have to mention uh -huh. this because I think it's super funny because we're talking about this as three men in this room. Uh -huh. Since men are told we're not allowed to have emotions, but we then go down the path of the construction of what is modernity towards masculinity. Our podcasts, podcasts just our way of finally expressing emotion because we're saying it in a platform that could be seen as business oriented. So is expressing it while recording, while trying to sound intelligent, does it match those kind of the hegemony of no no ability to speak inclusive masculinity if you will therefore we're sharing our feelings but not quietly in a public format drawing from from a mexican-american perspective it is roughly the equivalent of the mariachi <laughs> songs where the men are just 
wailing, just crying over some woman who has left because they did something terrible. Like the guy yeah. was, was awful. The woman left. And now the man is lamenting in the most sad and honestly at times pathetic and poetic ways possible. And this is from the same demographic of men whom I've only ever heard of crying, not actually seen shed tears, you know, for my, my, the men in my family to express emotion publicly might actually kill them. So yeah, but they know the songs <laughs> to all these, they know all the words to these songs, right? So no, it's the same thing. That's what this is. It's like, we're allowed to do it as performance. And in that way, then it's not like, you know, exactly. It, yeah. Yeah. No, it, entirely. We're in a recorded format that has a business like structure where we're able to talk, which allows the human component of reporting rapport talk right which is a yeah. very fem feminine structured but we're still doing a report message that we have a goal a time and then we can be silly but we can go back to a topic therefore it's a modern version of holding the masculinity of this idea while you know being totally a, a quote-unquote effeminate expressing feelings you know see well, we, it, we found a way <laughs> and we we do it in such an exaggerated way that it is almost emotional drag for for heterosexual you know uh, cisgendered men but far less productive than an actual drag show so <laughs> but going back, <laughs> but going back, but this actually circles back to the idea of like the popularity of podcasts and who they appeal to and all that kind of stuff. And why there's that recurring only half joke, because it is somewhat true that maybe, you know, straight dudes on the Internet shouldn't be allowed to have microphones. But like how we appeal, <laughs> because you think about someone that is any of the, you know, eminently popular yeah. podcasters, and it doesn't matter when this airs anytime in the last you know 10 years and probably for the next yeah. 10 years at least it'll be the same thing it's almost always almost always dudes or at least led by a guy right who is trying to appeal to a particular cultural interest or cultural orientation in terms of their audience and that's almost always other dudes usually and this is interesting from an educator perspective they're the kind of guys who are who have a a, a void of information that they're trying desperately to fill Right. Mm -hmm. Which can lend itself to the bad actors like the guys in the manosphere and, and that kind of thing. But, yeah, it's they're engaging in a sort of it, it is it is demographics based marketing. Right. Yeah, yeah. it is. It's demographics based marketing. It absolutely is. And I think it's a really interesting point you make with like, this is exactly what I meant when I talked about the fragmentation of what we're seeing with media. Right. We have this new we have these new celebrities that before like I, so. I'll just give kind of an anecdote situation. I'm an auditory learner. So my mm -hmm. entire life, let's just go with Harry Potter, for example. All my friends were reading that book when I was growing up, right? And I was listening to the books on tape. But I specifically remember being told that I was not listening. I was not reading Harry Potter because I didn't read it physically, right? Tangible. But now everyone is into podcasts. And ironically, I am of my friends the least consuming of podcasts just because like I have forced myself through feeling stigma to start just reading everything and trying to physically read because I was told, John, you cannot, you, you're not a reader, you're a listener. And all of a sudden, everything's listening. So the mm -hmm. shift in the change in the modernity of society is like everybody now is into podcasts and everybody wants to listen to it. Like the amount of times that I get asked, Hey, do you have a sociology podcast I can listen to? Cause I'm into this class, but I'd love to listen to a podcast. And then I'm like, I probably would have, if I hadn't been stigmatized into the ground, believing that <laughs> <laughs> listening wasn't allowed. It is the equivalent of seeing like, you know, the kind of guys who picked on you in high school wearing Captain America shirt. It's like, no, 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 no. This isn't for you. And no, I, I reject. <laughs> this is not for you. I had to you buy didn't have this. 
You didn't suffer. <laughs> I, I do think it's interesting, though, in terms of how these larger corporations are trying to respond to this niche marketing, particularly in podcasts. Like you see how like the the Obama podcast or the the Harry and what's his wife's name? The, the royal family. Megan. Megan, yeah. yeah, Harry and Megan podcast. Like those never really took off. They they're not actually that popular, and it, it's because it's not actually fulfilling a niche interest that like many other podcasts actually help do. They are they are so specific in the interests that they like pick through mm-hmm. that they're an, an audience uh, gravitates towards that because that's the appeal. This isn't. The appeal of something like a podcast or like uh, TikTok, for that matter, is is not this sort of monocultural sort of appeal to being part of mainstream society. It is actually like, finally, I have an outlet for my very particular, my very particular outlook on life, my very particular place in society. And, and there's a, there's a, there's a place for that where that expression is validated in some way. Yeah. Well, actually, they, mean- and also none of those people were on the Joe Rogan podcast. Joe Rogan podcast, which is why yeah, that's true, they're yeah, doomed yeah. to fail. I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. <laughs> oh, you know, I'll just, I'll just put tight tomorrow. I'm on Joe Rogan. No, just <laughs> you, actually, you, you hit a great point that I want to kind of put up here is that the reality is, is that there's this new construction of the modern marketing, right? And this is the intersectionalities that clarifies the role of brand persona groups. So you start looking at what you just mentioned, all these different ways that people are finding their niche abilities to see through either algorithms of social media or podcasts, but we've had to take into consideration with interaction and especially intersectionality of how do we take this personas that used to exist of the dyadic relationship and the cis straight base structure of the nuclear family and market all these things. But now we look at these intersectionalities of like, well, how do we approach this from someone who is a person of color, a black man, someone who is Latinx or someone who goes on this path? How are we going to market this? Because before a lot of times brands were just kind of like, you know, here's a general good idea throw it at the wall. If it doesn't, it's going to match the white population, going back to the weird example. And then you may have the Thorstein Veblen construction of, well, if this is seen as a significance of power, a symbol of power, then I'm going to own this too. But suddenly you have a lot of people being like, well, this doesn't match my culture. Like even as you said quite a few times, Gabe, and tying it to your history, it's branding is supposed to match the thing you want. Well, the thing you want is heavily constructed based on the cultural dynamics of what you see as a need purpose versus what is a need, what is a want, right? But yeah. we can't we can't just present this anymore because there's not this media outlet that has more all, all the eyes on it. Everyone's looking at Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. Uh, Reddit, all these different structures. So now we have this fragmented structure, kind of like Air Devil's Button Theory. The farther you look up, the more fragmentation there is. But now we also can see with real-time almost effects that social media almost provides too much instantaneous gratification that brands are jumping on and doing the silly things. Uh, think of those weather people who want to get views. So their their users say, hey, can you randomly sing the songs of J. Cole's Wet Dreams on the newscast? And then he's like, okay, I'll right. try it. You hear them slipping it in. So it's like, how do we approach these markets? Well, we have to evolve with time. And that the biggest thing is that's also changed also with gender fluidity. We can no longer market things as boys and girls toys because then you get the person being like, well, what about my child? They identify as non-binary. And it's like, True. oh, we're seeing this shift in this change that old school marketing is losing its power. And that's where social science, going back to the beginning of this conversation, comes in is that studying how people act, why they interact, what groups do, and how groups integrate into this process of the capitalistic structure is going to be the new need. But then that comes down to the problem of why sociology sticks their nose up at marketing, marketing sticks their nose back up at sociology is that 
sociology of itself is non-capitalistic and so is so much academia. But the reality is when I'm teaching, I don't know about you, but my 400-person classes, I view that as the biggest sales pitch of my life. I go, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I go in there and I'm just like, how can I make you see how much sociology matters? How can I show you this? I'll go into like medical malpractice. 16% of our GDP is spent in medical fraud, right? So then you go down the path of well, where does this come from? Well, uh, how often do doctors take cultural sensitivity? How often do they walk into a room and address the wrong person based on respect of the culture? How do they mm -hmm. go down this path? So social science is becoming so prominently amazing. I don't know if you're familiar with this. It's just kind of a fun little anecdote for you, but World of Warcraft was one of the first games to hire social scientists to help program it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And also did some interesting work with with the CDC yes. related to the spread of contagions and things like that. But yeah, yeah. well, and, and part of what also comes to mind when you're talking about this is uh, the idea of reconciling self-concept with the thing that is being marketed. So, for example, when you were talking about like the idea of, you know, you're a listener, not a reader, I bought into that stigma for a long time. I was very resistant to audiobooks for a while until... Because I thought, well, that's not the same thing, right? For the same reasons that I was resistant to like reading digitally, right? Like an iPad or a Kindle or something like that, which is entire, which is stupid. It is just dumb. Is, if you, yes. however you want to consume the media, as long as it's not intravenously, do what you want to do, right? And I'll say that because I'm sure in the next 20 years, we'll have some way of like injecting books, but whatever. So, but like I started getting into narrative podcasts, which in my mind were radio plays, not like not books. Those are two different. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. The same just thing. yeah, just written with a with a different uh, structure a little bit to be more conducive to the format. But yeah, and now I listen to audiobooks all the time, and a large part of that was this idea of getting past the stigma. Right. Of like what mm -hmm. you were talking about. And then going back to this idea of like the sales pitch and, and students, if you're teaching a, a first or second level, like a 1000 or a 2000 level class, you are effectively making a sales pitch that tries to reconcile their interest with the, their interests, with the interests of the department and merging that into a part of the self-concept. So, yeah, no, it's it's all absolutely connected. In that vein, though, we do need to start pulling this to an end. So, mm -hmm. John, is there anything that we haven't touched on yet that you really wanted to get to? Um, no, I think over the different conversations, we've kind of hit those points. I, I think that the crux of this topic of this, right, uh, what does social science do to marketing is that I, when I was leaving marketing and going into sociology, uh, one of the reasons I got my master's and my graduate and all that is that they wanted me to have it because we're seeing an influx of the need to understand social groups. Before it used to be like brand awareness, brand value built to this idea, what are we going to hold as a brand? But now we're starting to see that brand value has to mirror that of the culture. And that then comes into, well, how do we study the culture? What are we doing to study the culture? How are we getting right. an idea of what's going to cause this person to buy, this group to buy, what's going to offend this group to buy? And I just think that one of the big things that, you know, take away from this and anything that people are listening is that the social sciences, no matter what field you're looking into, are going to start showing you how do we analyze the group? not just the product. Because if you make a product that that becomes iconic, sure, that's great. You're going to be Chanel cool. You're going to be Rolex cool. But what, you're not going to have that money power. How do you take this topic? How do you take these ideas? Merge it into these consumers' wants, needs, but also tie it to their lifestyle choices. Because times are changing. Marketing has to change. And it has started to change. And what we need to understand is that you can't just tell people, oh, just get a business degree. That's cool. But what about understanding what makes people think? Because... Right. Half of my success was being able to understand who I was talking to and how do I structure my conversation to match their ideology and their perspectives. And I think that's kind of where you see that line. The fragmentations created this huge rift, the removal of the binary structures like fluidity towards how we market towards men, women, and those who are 
intersex or those who are non-binary, that needs to be taken into consideration. And then also the intersectionality, if you go to Collins, how do we take people's walks of life and turn that into something we can represent? So I think social science and marketing has this huge element that needs to stop looking at each other with distaste. Oh, salespeople. Mm -hmm. Oh, academia. If we merge those together and we teach people to be better people and understand better group understandings, the ROI is also huge. I can tell you when I went from an account executive to a director in less than a year and a half, it's because I used social sciences and marketing. So you talk about the changing the way that we market things and whatnot. And, and that's, that's actually what you said is, a, is an excellent point to conclude on. I just want to add one small thing. Tactical diaper bags for men are a thing. They're camouflage. And they make it look like you're going to be hiking through Afghanistan. So that speaks to some kind of market. So anyway. <laughs> Dr. Um, Squash smells like whiskey. Men yeah. having alcohol. <laughs> what does man soap smell like? That I need this. Question. <laughs> I need this diaper cream to smell like sawdust. So I maintain a secure sense of masculinity while I'm changing my child. Right? Like, God almighty. <laughs> That's a good one. Right. Anyway, camo diapers, camo yeah. diapers, you know, it's like or like eczema cream, but it's got like, you know, it's some sort of like reference to gun oil or, or like, you know, lubricant right. for a firearm and that kind of thing. Yeah. So anyway. one percent of so. nitrous glycerin in it. Don't shake it. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Oh. <laughs> for the guy who totally would have served, but he just he never got around to it anyway. <laughs> So, John, Mr. McQueen, where can people find you if you want to be found or you, or do you want to be found? Maybe you prefer, you know, uh, not when having When I'm not hiding in the woods in Sedona and hiding, people can find me at my uh, tag, which is at the Sociology Cat. It's a account that I'm building towards being able to bring information around sociology. So that's at the underscore sociology underscore cat. Uh, feel free to follow me there. And then if you are going to Arizona State University, you can find me on every single course list because as you've said so wonderfully, Gabe, I teach all the classes while the tenure mm -hmm. step. I mean, what? Yeah, yeah no, it's... <laughs> Yeah, their their tenure track pedestals exist on a foundation of lectures and adjuncts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> Pretty that's much. entirely Very what it is. Said. Which is also why there's a proxy war that exists between tenured faculty and administration, and the battleground is always the lecturing and the adjuncting professors, right? Because if you can weaken them, the tenures have even less of a leg to stand on. It's so, okay because yeah. we all unify on making fun of the adjunct because I'm faculty, so I get to make fun of them too. But you know, I do, I do it just because I need someone to punch up at, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. You ever um, want to have that conversation? That's a three-hour conversation. <laughs> <laughs> all right, folks. Well, and of course, if you want to hear any more of this foolishness out of me, you can find me on uh, TikTok, the platform formerly known as Twitter, and Instagram at Cruz underscore PhD. A friend of mine gave me a Blue Sky social code I need to use, and maybe I'll start building a platform there. We'll see. Anyway, so remember to share us with your friends and enemies. You know, leave comments, you know, reviews, that kind of stuff, and play us during momentous occasions. Like, you know, we're heading into the holiday season. This will probably be released before Thanksgiving. Play yeah. us when things get real weird. So, anyway, at the Thanksgiving dinner table. And uh, yeah, we'll catch y'all next week. See you in the office. <laughs> Bye.